Hello, and welcome to the Food Underfoot podcast. Today, we're going to talk about intentional, sustainable foraging, mindful foraging. But first, I want to say hello and welcome to all our new listeners and patrons. I'm so grateful for all the support I've been getting over on patreon.com slash foodunderfoot. If you want to support this podcast and receive our monthly full-color digital Food Underfoot magazine and read patron-only posts, please head over there and check us out. There are also public posts on there, a lot of great information, including these show notes, which I released a day early for patrons, but after that are available for everyone. So that's on www patreon.com slash food underfoot p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash food underfoot so again thank you so much for all your support and now let's get on with the show so first corrections last week i released a podcast about chinese medicine and five flavors and foraging. And I released it on the Chinese New Year, the year of the ox. And I didn't even mention it or say Happy New Year. So Happy New Year. The ox is the second animal in the 12 year, 12 animal Chinese zodiac cycle, but it actually should have been the first. The Jade Emperor, one of the most important Taoist gods, held a great race where the first 12 winners would be chosen to be the royal guard. And the winners of this race ended up as the 12 animals of the Chinese zodiac in the order that they finished. So the rat was initially in the lead but was unable to cross the river. So it tricked the ox into giving it a ride. It stayed on the ox's back all the way to the finish, but then jumped down and scampered to the emperor first. As a result, the rat became the first animal in the cycle and the ox was the second. The ox is steady and hardworking. Rat ears, which was last year, are often tricky and turbulent, as we saw. But now our hard work should pay off. And if the Chinese zodiac is correct, we should have a nice, steady year. If you were born in, in 1925, 1937, 1949, 1961, 1973, 1985, 1997, 2009, or this year, then you are an ox. Your personality can be characterized as hardworking, intelligent, and reliable. And some famous people born in the year of the ox are, or were, Barack Obama, Margaret Thatcher, Princess Diana, Robert Kennedy, George Clooney, Meryl Streep, Jane Fonda, and the athletes Carl Lewis and Simone Biles. 
Now, on to today's podcast. Let's talk about mindful foraging. So most of what I forage are invasive plants, plants like garlic mustard, burdock, Japanese knotweed, purslane, and dandelion, or things which grow abundantly, like nettles and violet. But even so, I still like to be mindful when I forage. I take in not just the plant, but I notice the whole patch of plants and the area where it's growing. I like to see how it's growing. Is it in a big, healthy patch? Are there other patches of the plant around? Is there a diversity of plants in the area? Is the plant I'm harvesting invasive? Is it native? And if it's invasive, is it crowding out natives and disrupting the area? Like garlic mustard growing in the woods of Pennsylvania, crowding out native toothworts and other native plants like trillium and jack in the pulpit. I slow down when I walk especially if I'm in the woods looking for mushrooms. I don't tramp on mayapple and other plants. I'm careful about my footfalls. I step over plants, whether they're just emerging like mayapple in the early spring or in full bloom like a trillium might be. And this is especially true when I'm looking for morel mushrooms in a native forest just awakening from winter. I slow down. And not only does it spare native plant life from being trampled, but it has the added benefit of helping me find morels. And if I do notice a lot of garlic mustard, I usually pull it up. And this is especially effective when the ground is soft like it is in the early spring, because then I can pull up its full root system. And when the plant has not yet flowered, it won't release its seeds. So... A lot of parks do have mandates against picking plants and foraging. So it's really good to check and follow the rules and guidelines of the park. But also I've seen parks that now post pictures of invasives like garlic mustard and specifically ask visitors to pull it if they see it. So it really does depend on the park and it's worth looking around, reading the postings, and even asking the rangers. But if the park does have a strict no foraging, except for mushrooms or berries rule, which is a lot of the time they do, I do respect that. But a lot of times I'm in a place where I know they appreciate all the help they can get in pulling garlic mustard. And so I pull it. And I usually bring some home to make pesto, and add to salads, and then I just pull some to keep the forest healthy because native plants keep a forest healthy. There's a native butterfly called the West Virginia white butterfly that lays its eggs on toothwort. And when it lays its eggs on garlic mustard, as it often does when garlic mustard invades an area, those caterpillars don't survive. So I found an article on this on the Cleveland Museum of Natural History website, and I will try to put a link to that in the show notes. But 
That article calls garlic mustard a nasty invasive species because it crowds out native species in our forest understory. Like I mentioned before, the toothworts, the trillium, uh, and even in our yard. And in addition to its ability to displace native plants and completely take over an area, it poses a threat to the rare native butterfly, that West Virginia white butterfly, which is found in North America in the Great Lakes states, along the Appalachians from Alabama up to New England and even up into Southern Ontario. So these butterflies are typically found in moist, deciduous forests. And native toothwort species are the caterpillar host plants for the West Virginia whites. And garlic mustard typically grows in the same area as the native toothwort. And the butterflies mistakenly lay their eggs on it. And when those eggs hatch, the caterpillars feed on the garlic mustard and it's toxic to them. And this is contributing to the decline of this increasingly rare butterfly. So in an upcoming episode, once spring finally arrives and the garlic mustard is everywhere, I'll go more into depth about this plant and also give you some ideas and recipes for how you can eat it. So not only do I like using it for pesto, but I also love to steep it in vinegar. It makes a delicious flavored vinegar, but I'll get more into that in about a month. So back to mindful foraging. Uh, number one, like I mentioned, slow down. Number two, look around. Take in the environment, the growth. What is growing there? What animals are living there? How healthy is the area? And also, are there any poison plants, like poison hemlock nearby? So I avoid harvesting edible plants that are growing too close to deadly ones. Um, I just don't, you know, I don't like that idea, the root systems being so close together. So I just avoid areas where there are a lot of poison hemlock or other poison plants growing. And also, I ask, how close am I to a highway? or to a stream which might be polluted. So I like to notice all these things. I really observe an area before I harvest anything. So number three, when harvesting, I take so little from a patch that when I walk away and someone else comes up, the patch looks undisturbed. That's my goal. Anyway, I don't want an area to look ransacked or picked over. I like to leave it looking healthy and untouched. So I take very little from one area and move on to the next. Also, I take only what I'm going to use. So it's okay, I feel it's okay to take enough to freeze or to dry if that's my plan and there is enough in that area because that's using it. But especially, especially with a native plant, I do not take more than I need. And with a native plant, I ask myself, is this really necessary? Because the truth, of course, is probably no. I'm not foraging to survive. Um, not only can I shop at a store, but I can also eat plentiful invasive plants. So if I'm having a seasonal treat like fiddleheads or ramps, I might have it once a season, maybe twice. 
but I certainly don't feast on it like there's no tomorrow because there might be no tomorrow for that plant if I overharvest it. Remember, one little fiddlehead is an entire fern leaf. So I only harvest one or two per plant and then I move on to the next plant. I remember reading in a foraging book on fiddlehead ferns, I think it was the book The Wild Table by Connie Green and Sarah Scott. But it said about fiddleheads and ferns, it said, they survived the dinosaurs, let's make sure they survive us too. And that really stayed with me because ferns are a really old plant. I looked it up, 358.9 million years old. So remember a couple episodes ago, we were talking about ginkgo being 200 million years old. And that that was so old, there was only one continent at the time, Pangaea, and there were still dinosaurs. Well, this is 358.9 million years old before there were even seeds in the plant life cycle. Ferns have spores rather than seeds. They are much older than flowering plants. Flowering plants are thought to be between 140 and 200 million years old. And so ferns are literally as old as dinosaurs and some are actually older than dinosaurs. So to be able to eat them today is an incredible gift. So we have to be mindful and respectful of that. And the other thing I like to do and was taught to do, this is number four, is to leave something behind when I take something from a plant. So for me, it's often a moment of gratitude. I like to put my hand over the area where I've broken a plant or pulled something from the earth and I take a moment and thank the plant and connect to the energy. In acupuncture, we actually call that closing the hole. And it's an energetic thing we do when we pull the needles out of an area when we're, if we're using the point for tonification. So I'd pull the needle out and immediately cover the hole with a cotton ball, not because it's gonna bleed uh, in general, acupuncture needles are so thin, they don't cause bleeding, but it's to prevent the energy from escaping or leaking out. So on the other hand, if I'm using a point to disperse energy or create movement, if I'm trying to release blocked stagnation or something, I leave the hole open when I pull the needle out. And that's become like second nature to me. So when I pull a plant, I don't just walk away from it the area. It doesn't feel right to me. I always put my hand over the hole, even though it's not literally a hole, but the area where the plant was growing. I cover it and I let my energy flow into it. And mentally, I thank the plant or the earth for letting, and I let myself feel that gratitude and I kind of channel that gratitude into the ground. And I realize that might sound a little bit out there. And, but I originally learned about wild plants and herbal medicine from two herbalists who definitely had a more spiritual bent and a connection with the earth. 
One called herself a green witch, and the other one probably did too. I don't exactly remember, but she definitely had a kind of pagan goddess earth energy to her. And they both believed in fairies and the energies of plants and earths and trees. Uh, They communicated the sacredness and seriousness of harvesting plants in their teachings. When I learned about Chinese herbs, I was in a classroom and I learned through lectures. And although there's no doubt a sense of spirituality running through Chinese medicine and Chinese herbs, that's not how I learned it. No judgment, just how it is. So when I teach, I often talk more just about the plants, like here is X. This is how you identify it. This is what part is edible. This is how you use it. Even though when I'm out there in the field by myself, I feel a connection to the plants, but I don't typically convey that in how I teach. And I'm beginning to think that I'm doing the plants and the people I teach a disservice. And it was really made clear to me once when I showed someone where some nettles were and I showed her how to harvest them because she wanted to use them for a recipe she was creating. And at the time she happened to have a big platform and she went on a national radio show and she said, you just wear gloves, grab the nettles and pull them out by the roots. Just pull, pull, pull. And I literally felt sick. First, because you only use the tops of nettles. If you're using the greens, you should never disturb the roots. But secondly, and most importantly, because I knew it was my fault. I didn't teach her well enough. I was to blame. And this was aired on a national radio show. So it was really a lesson to me to take more care in how I teach. And although it may seem to some people kind of wacky to learn about the spirit of plants or to have a feeling of gratitude when harvesting, if I'm going to continue to teach about harvesting wild plants, I have to impart some kind of reverence and respect and care and mindfulness in the process. I don't know if you can hear my cat meowing at the door. I came into this room specifically to avoid that. But anyway, (laughs) there she is. So yes, I need to impart some kind of reverence, respect and care and mindfulness with the process of harvesting. And one doesn't have to be a witch or a pagan, but one should respect nature and be in awe of the history of these plants and their life cycle and the interconnectedness of what is around them. And when I walk in and out of a forest, I want it to look more healthy and more untouched than before I was there. And that's something I actually learned from a summer I spent with Knowles, which stands for the National Outdoor Leadership School. And Knowles was started by the same person who started Outward Bound but in response to Outward Bound, because he saw that because he was teaching people about the wilderness and taking people into the wilderness, the wilderness wasn't the same place anymore as he once knew. So he created Knowles. And in Knowles, for example, after we were done sleeping in an area, we fluffed up the grass and 
before we left the area, we looked back to see, does this look like anyone was there? And if it did, we remedied it. We made it look wild. We scuffed it up. And if we were hiking in the wilderness, if we came across a fire circle that someone had left, we broke it up. We threw the rocks in different directions. We kicked the ashes. And we made it look like no one had been there. And I feel like now, as I continue to teach people which wild plants they can use as and eat and use as medicine, as I am doing through this podcast as well as in person, I really want to impart the idea of respect, of slowing down, of carefully observing an area, of being honest if a plant should be harvested for the health of the forest, and then taking only what we need, harvesting sparingly, connecting with the history, connecting with the earth, and connecting with the plant and the animals that rely on those plants. So thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe to this podcast. In the spring, uh, summer, and fall, I'm going to focus more on specific plants and mushrooms, and we'll get more into identifying them and how to make recipes and medicine from the plants. Oh my gosh, her paw is now sticking through the bottom of the door. I don't know why she's so desperate. But uh, until then, I want to lay a foundation about healthy, mindful foraging. And also, I want to send love and healing and warmth to my friends and listeners in Texas and other parts of the South who aren't used to this cold weather and who've been without power for a while now. It's a scary position to be in. And just know that we in the North feel for you and are sending you love and hoping you get through this safely and swiftly. So please subscribe to the podcast. Uh, Tell your friends about it. Join us over on Patreon. I would, of course, love to have you as a supporting patron, but even if not, there are lots of public posts over there, and the show notes are there, and if you happen to find them locked, they'll be public by the next day. There's great pictures and information, and once spring arrives, there's going to be a lot more on there, including videos. So that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash food underfoot patreon.com slash food underfoot and there's also opportunity to support me and support the podcast if you care to do that that's over there too so if you have any comments or corrections or suggestions for future episodes You can send them to me at foodunderfoot at gmail.com. That's all one word, foodunderfoot at gmail.com. Okay, thank you so much for listening. See you next time. Bye-bye.